A while ago, I heard my wife saying that she would like some mason jars with handles. And so I decided that I would buy her some mason jars with handles for Christmas. Now, in case you're worried, I do get my wife more than just mason jars with handles for Christmas. I occasionally get her the lids, too. <laughs> but nonetheless, that was part of my Christmas gift for Krista. And when the box came in the mail, I ran upstairs to hide it in the closet. And as I ran upstairs, I heard the sound. Jingle, jingle, jingle. And I opened the box, and sure enough, one of the jars was in itsy-bitsy little pieces. Now, suppose someone was standing there when I opened the box, and they were to see the, the contents, and they were to say, Oh, how generous! You have gotten for your wife a bunch of little sharp pieces of glass for Christmas. And I would say, No, that's not what I ordered. Yes, everything, all the contents are there but they're arranged in the wrong order. <laughs> you know, when, when Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the creator of the world, we looked last time at the fact that he is Lord of creation, but what he has ordered is now broken. Yes, Jesus is, is Lord of this universe. He's Lord of creation, but just look at this world. This world is a broken place. And you can know that not just by looking at politics, not just by looking at the things that go on in the world around us, but just check out your own heart. You find grief and sorrow within your own heart. It would be one thing if the evil were all on the outside of us. But we find evil woven in the very fabric of our existence. And so we're in Colossians chapter 1 and we're looking at this poem in which Paul is exalting Jesus Christ as the Lord of creation, as the Lord, but this implies this question, okay, if Jesus made everything, then what happened? And what can fix it? We see the corrosion of human nature. It makes everything rattle and clank and break down. And the world around us is just fragments of the beauty that should have been, that was intended to be, and is not now. And when you think that you've found it, when you think you've finally found something in this world that will satisfy you completely, then you realize it quickly doesn't. The Christmas present that you thought would be the ultimate Christmas present, the batteries run out. The job that you thought would be the dream job. You discover something about it that you don't really like. The relationship that you thought would just fill you and fulfill you and satisfy you. You discover flaws in the other person and flaws in yourself. We realize that this world is a broken world because we are broken people. Jesus, yes, he's Lord of creation, but there's something wrong. And it's called sin. Even though Christ is Lord of all creation, not all creation treats Christ as Lord. That's what we gain from reading the first part of this, this poem here beginning in verse 15. So, what is it, we should be asking, what can bring together what has been shattered? What glue could possibly repair this brokenness? 
Like, what diplomat could possibly negotiate the peace necessary to fix this mess? That's the question that we need to be asking. If Jesus is Lord of all, then how can he be Lord of not only the creation as it is, but the Lord of creation as it should be? And that's exactly why Paul goes on in the second half of this poem to exalt Christ not only as, of, as Lord of what is, not only of the maker of what is, but of the maker of what should be. He is not only Lord, but he's also Savior. He is Lord of creation and Lord of new creation. And then he begins that in verse 18 saying this, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the question that I want to put to you, and the question I think will help uh, just release the, 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 the dynamite of this passage is this. What qualifies Jesus to be the Lord of new creation? All right. So what qualifies Jesus Christ to be not just Lord of what is, but Lord and maker of what should be. And, and this passage, verses 18, 19, and 20, which is our text for this morning, gives us three truths about Jesus that qualifies him to be Lord of new creation. And here they are, and this is the outline for the, for the message, so you have a mental roadmap of where I'm going, okay? And that is that as the head of the church, Jesus brings life and peace, okay? So we'll divide this into three parts. Jesus is the head of the church, Jesus brings life, and Jesus makes peace. Okay, he, he's the head of the church, he brings life, and he makes peace. And I'm going to explain to you what is, the, is meant by each of those statements. So first of all, you see in verse 18, and we're, we're seeking to understand the, the meaning of this text, and he is the head of the body, the church. So first of all, Jesus is the head of the church. And by church here, Paul is not referring just to like a specific gathering of people. Like we, Trinity Baptist Church, yes, we are a church. But Paul is referring actually in th this, this use of the word church by all people who have believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what he means by church. And Jesus is the head of the church. So whether they speak French or Mandarin, whether they're in Canada or the Congo, whether it's people that build fires and live in huts, or people that turn on the tap and get water and live in high-rise apartments, wherever they are, whatever language they speak, whatever culture they occupy, whatever place in the world they live, if they have believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are the church and Jesus is their head. That's what Paul means when he says, and Jesus is the head of the church. That is all people everywhere for all time who have believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are the body, he is the head. Paul refers to a similar thing in another letter, and that is in the letter to the Ephesians when he says this. I'll read it to you. God put all things under Christ's feet and made him and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we have this picture of Christ as the head and the church as the body, and this picture is meant to help us understand the relationship between Jesus and those who follow him. Right? Jesus and those who believe in him. And this picture emphasizes at least three things about the relationship between Jesus and the church. And I'll, I'll list these for you. First of all, authority. Remember saying that Jesus is the head of the church. What does that even mean? It means that he is the one who is at the control center. He is the command center of the church. Authority. Just like your brain should tell your body what to do, so Jesus tells the church what to do. A body that moves 
without the brain telling it to move, there's some problems there, right? Or when the brain tells the body to move and it doesn't, there are some problems there. Right? By saying that Christ is the head of the church, of which it is, the church is the body of Christ, he's saying Jesus should be in charge. Jesus should have the authority. He is the command center. He gives a command and the church obeys. That's what is meant by this metaphor of Jesus being the head of the church. But there's another meaning of this and that is position. Just like your head is above your body, when you stand up, it occupies a position above your body. So Jesus has a position exalted above the church. Like No human being should be exalted above the church. The church has one head, one being that it exalts. There is one person who is preeminent. There's one person who we seek to exalt, and that is Jesus Christ. Just as, just as your head occupies an exalted position over the rest of your body when you're standing, so Jesus occupies an exalted position over the church, which is his body. Authority, position, and then the third truth that this draws out about Jesus as the head of the church is that of connection. Heads and bodies should be connected. And when they're not, problems happen. So by, by saying that Jesus is the head of the church, Paul is emphasizing that there is the most important connection between Jesus and those who follow him. You can't be part of the body of Christ. You can't have a, a vital relationship with God except through Jesus Christ the head. So in order to live, in order to thrive, in order to flourish, in order to be truly alive spiritually, you have to be connected to Jesus Christ. This is precisely what the Apostle Peter was talking about when he preached a sermon in the book of Acts. And he said this, I'll read it to you. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, Jesus Christ is the only source of life. He is the head of the body. Now, we say that Someone is running around like a chicken, what? With its head cut off. And what an appropriate way to describe our world today. Out of control, and the clock is ticking. That's why we are in need of a new creation. With Christ at its head. Connected to the only one who can bring life. The current order of things. Remember I was saying at the beginning, why are things so broken? And what will fix it? Only Jesus being at the head is going to fix it. Why is Jesus qualified to be Lord not only of creation, things as they are, broken, yes, but also of new creation? Because he is the head of the body of the church. In other words, Jesus is doing something brand new in the world today. He is bringing people who are far from God near to God. He is bringing people who are dead spiritually and making them alive spiritually. He's bringing people who live in guilt and despair and he's bringing them to forgiveness and hope because they're connected to him vitally. That's something brand new. That's a new creation. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. Jesus is Lord not only of the creation as it is, but also of creation as it should be, which is what he's doing right now on this world by bringing people into a right relationship with God. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But how did this come about? 
So Jesus is the head of a new humanity. So vitally connected him that he could be considered their head and he the body. But how did this happen? This brings us to our second point. Remember I said the three truths about Christ that qualifies him to be the Lord of new creation. First of all, he is the head of the body. But second, Jesus brings life. So Jesus brings life. So we looked at this, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. And now we're beginning after this, this the first sentence here to go to the second sentence. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus brings life. Let's focus on that first statement that says this. He is the beginning. He is the beginning. Why is it possible for Jesus to bring life? Because he is the beginning. And by this, Paul does not merely mean that Jesus was at the beginning, although he was at the beginning. By, by saying he is the beginning, it means that Jesus actually started everything. Like, the fact that Jesus is the beginning, it's like Jesus is the, the engine of the train that's pulling everything else behind it. It's the beginning. He's the creative impulse. It's like the flame that starts the fire. He is the beginning of it all. The general leading the charge. This is what Jesus is. This is what is meant by the fact that he is the beginning. The one who starts it all. So why is this possible? It's possible because for him to bring people to life because he is the beginning. He is the creator of life. But also, what does this mean for people? Well, look at the next phrase. He is the beginning. And then, and then it says, the firstborn from the dead. All right. This phrase, the firstborn from the dead, is kind of like Mary Poppins' handbag. Because you can just, you just start pulling things out of it and it's all in there, but you wouldn't think that it contained, contained that much. This statement is just packed with significance. Because by saying that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, do you realize what Paul is implying? He is implying that Jesus actually was at some point in time dead. Jesus, I remember I just said that Jesus is the source of life and at the very source of life, he gave up his life. God became flesh in, the, in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus, as the Son of God, he lived obediently and he became obedient, so obedient, he paid the ultimate cost, the ultimate sacrifice. He laid down his own life. So, so by, the, by, the, by saying he's the firstborn from the dead, literally it means the firstborn from among the dead ones. The word dead is plural, okay? So it's referring to dead people. There are a lot of dead people in this universe. In fact, there are more dead people than there are, more, there are alive people. Did you know that? We are the few, <laughs> the living. And behind us have been many people who have died. And yet Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he was the very first one to actually push past the barrier of death. Why? Because he is the son of God. 100% man, 100% God. He died, but he's now alive. And that qualifies him to be the one who can bring life. This is what is meant by firstborn from the dead. It doesn't mean that Jesus began to, that, that the Son of God began to exist at a certain point of time. He's always been God into eternity past. What it means is this, is that because Jesus rose from the dead, there are many that are going to follow in his wake. Paul uses a parallel expression in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. Like the first ripe apple 
that turns that brilliant shade of red that you can pluck right off the tree and it's a sign of, of thousands and thousands of more ripe apples yet to come. So with Jesus rising from the dead and conquering death, what, is he, what does it mean? It means that there are others who could also conquer death because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. As in Adam all die, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, so in Christ will all be made alive who believe in him. So Jesus is qualified to be the Lord of new creation, not only because he is the head of the, the church, but also because he's the bringer of life. How can he be the bringer of life? He is the source of life and he conquered death. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now what does this prove? This takes us to this next phrase, that in everything he might be preeminent. How is this possible that Jesus brings life? It's possible because he's the beginning, the source of life. What does this mean? It means that those who believe in him can also come to life. He is the firstborn from the dead. But what does this prove? It proves that in all things he might be preeminent. It proves that he is Lord of new creation. He's untouchable. Unparalleled. He's unsurpassed. In all things he might be preeminent. So what qualifies him to be Lord of new creation? He's the head of the body of the church. He brings life. But there's a third thing that Jesus does. And, and I want to I introduce it by, by giving you a little thought experiment. And, and it might sound a we weird at first, but you'll, I think, figure out what I'm doing. There's something, you've probably heard of it, it's called cryonics. And the word uh, itself comes from a Greek word, kruo, which means cold. And it's something that people do in the hope of extending their lives after death. So the idea is, someone dies and within moments, you lower their body temperature, extremely cold, essentially freeze them, with the hope that at some point in the future, if there's some cure to whatever they died from, that cure will be discovered, then you thaw them out, and then bring them back to life. So the person has a second chance at life. Now, the practice of cryonics is, you should also know this, just in case you think this might be a great idea, it's, it's considered quackery. And the study of it is considered pseudoscience, which means false science. But the craving that gives rise to cryonics is anything but false. Why, people want to live longer. Death is not a good thing. People fear death. People don't want their loved ones to die. I was listening to a, a, a podcast about this where, where there's a man whose, whose son died as a child. Or I'm not sure if it was his son or daughter, but it was a, it was a child who died. And, and, they, and they, he wanted this... He wanted this child to be re resuscitated, revived, and, and, so, and so sent the body off to a cryonics center just in the hope of some resurrection. You see how deeply implanted in our hearts is this desire to extend our lives. But let me ask you another question. What would happen if suddenly that were possible? Suppose for a moment that immediately everyone alive today lived forever. As they are, as we are, that somehow we found, we located somewhere in Florida, the Fountain of Youth. I mean, they were looking for that a long time ago, I think. 
I'm pretty sure that people that go to Florida don't come back any younger. Maybe someday we'll find that miracle drug that's going to break the boundaries of cancer and disease and aging and we'll live forever. What kind of world would that be? There was a British author that was asked the question, do you believe in life after death? And he said, no, I couldn't bear the thought of being myself forever. Man, we laugh at that, but there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, if you, couldn't, if you couldn't bear being yourself forever, how could you bear other people being themselves forever? Here's the point of this. If our lives were to be extended indefinitely as we are, that would not be a paradise. That would really extend misery. In fact, if you trace the trajectory of individual people's lives in terms of what happens to them morally, people don't tend to get sweeter. Think of how cranky we'd be in a million years. And yet we have this naive desire that if we just live longer, that would solve our problems. That will not solve our problems. What does this little thought experiment do? That our need is not just for immortality. We need so much more than just to live forever. We need to be changed. We need peace. We need peace. We don't just need immortality. We need perfection. We need transformation. We need something to happen within us, something to happen outside of us, something that will make this world not be just some unending series of misery and wretchedness, but actually life. That's why Jesus says, I have come, to ha come that they might have life, not just an extension of our existence, but life more abundantly. That's why when I ask you the question, okay, what qualifies Jesus to be Lord of new creation? Because he is the head of the church, yes. Because Jesus alone can bring life, yes. But also because Jesus can bring peace. We need more than just eternal life. We need everlasting peace. And that's exactly what Paul says that Jesus does. In verse 19 it says, For in him all the fullness of, the God, of God was pleased as well. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making what? Making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Jesus is Lord of new creation not only because he is the head of the body, not the church, not only because he brings life, but because he makes peace. And only Jesus can make peace. What is peace? Well, the peace is so much more than just the absence of conflict. But let's just start there, okay? We know what conflict is. You know what it is when two siblings are fighting with one another? You know when a spouse, two spouses are, are at odds with each other? You know what it looks like when two states, two nations are, are fighting with each other? There's lack of peace. So we need peace. But you peel the layers back a little further, you realize you need peace with yourself, inside yourself. When there's guilt and when there's shame and when there's anxiety, there's not peace. There's turmoil. There's fightings within. We all find ourselves to be in that state. But here's something we often fail to understand. Is that peace cannot exist without justice. Peace cannot exist without justice. And here, let me illustrate with this. Suppose 
I offer to two children a cookie. And I'll say, I'll divide this cookie for you. And I, here's the cookie. And I cut it off right here. Little bitty, bitty piece for one kid and a big piece for the other kid. And I say, here you go. You know what? That's the best way to destroy peace. <laughs> Why? Because there's injustice. You can't have peace without justice, without fairness. You cannot have peace until penalties have been paid, until debts have been made right. You cannot have peace as long as evil and injustice reigns on the earth, right? We need to understand that we, we have such a, such a naturally naive view of peace. We think, oh, peace can come at no cost. Oh, those who have fought in the armed forces know that peace is expensive. We tend to so easily forget that. Peace comes at an enormous cost. That's why Paul writes this. What did it take to purchase this peace? Look at verse 20. To reconcile to himself all things making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. Here's what Paul is saying. The peace that Jesus purchased for us was so expensive, so costly, he had to satisfy the wrath of God to do it. And to satisfy the wrath of God took shedding his own blood in, in a torturous way on the, on the cross. That's what Jesus did to purchase our peace. Now, at the mention of the wrath of God, some people might say, well, that sounds so impolite. A wrathful God? That sounds so medieval, so barbaric, so Old Testament. None of us blame someone for being angry at evil. In fact, we think it would be strange for someone not to be indignant when people are abused and treated unfairly. There'd be something morally wrong with a person who can't feel wrath at such evil and injustice. Now, who in all the world do you think has the right to be the angriest? If not the person who's responsible for making this world to be a beautiful, good place, and that is God himself. Oh, we say it's so impolite for God to be to be angry, and yet at the same time, we have to acknowledge that there is no other right, appropriate response to the kind of evil that we see in the world. It's the only thing that makes sense. And yes, God is an angry God. Why? Because there is such a thing as evil, which so many of us try to ignore. Yet the Bible doesn't ignore that. The Bible is a very realistic book. And we should be realistic people and understand there, there is evil that deserves wrath. What is going to make it right? We tend to think, well, God can just dismiss it all. Just like, just like sometimes you can say, hey, can I get this fee waived? And the fee is waived. It's like, well, what was the point of the fee after all if it just can be waived? It's not like that with sin. There has to be a penalty paid. How can it be paid and who's going to pay it? What's the cost for reconcili reconciliation? Yes, it costs something. And yes, the price was immense. But who paid for it? God himself did. God himself paid for it by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And here is the genius of the gospel. The divine power of the gospel. The miracle of love. The mixing of judgment and mercy. That God himself, the one who was offended, becomes the one who makes it right. That's what Paul means when he says, 
that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus being fully God, he reconciles all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. There are some things about that that we may not fully understand, but we do know this, that Jesus has made it possible to bring everyone who believes in him into a right relationship with God, thus making peace. He's the head of the church. He brings life and he makes peace. There's a man named Don Richardson. He died December of 2018. He was a Canadian missionary and he worked among the tribal people of western New Guinea. And he was trying to explain to them the meaning of, of what Christ has done for them. He was trying to get the gospel, the good news about Jesus to these, these tribal people in, in New Guinea. And he became aware that there was such a gulf between his Christian way of thinking and their non-Christian tribal way of thinking. He was trying to understand, how do I, how do I communicate the gospel to them? And, and when he would tell the gospel story, and he would tell about the story about how that Jesus was betrayed, Judas betrayed Jesus, they thought Judas was the hero of the story. And they thought Jesus was the dupe. I mean, he tells the gospel story and they just don't get it. And eventually he discovered how to communicate the gospel to them. There were some villages that were in constant battle. And, and his family, Don Richardson's family, were considering leaving the area. And so the Sawi people, that was the name of the Sawi people in these villages, they came together and they decided that they were, they were going to make peace with each other. And in order to make peace, they began exchanging their children. One man in particular ran toward his enemy's camp and literally gave his son to his enemy. And Richardson watches this. He sees this. He sees this guy running to the huts of his enemies and giving his little son to them. And he wrote down this. If a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. And furthermore, anyone who would touch that son that was given could also be, could be at peace with their enemy. And suddenly Richardson knew he had found how to communicate the gospel to these people. And if the difference between the son that was given in the story that Richardson tells about the people of New Guinea and the Sawi tribe, the difference between the son that was given is that Jesus was not given against his will. He, he gave his life. He shed his blood willingly. He knew what he was doing. He was giving himself as a sacrifice for us so that we could be at peace with God. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what qualifies Jesus to be Lord, not only of this broken world as it is, but also to make the world what it should be. A place in which individuals are at peace with God. A place in which people can thrive and flourish, not just in this world, but in, most importantly, in the world to come, because there is a world to come. Paul writes in the book of Romans, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how it happens, my friends. Peace with God happens as you come to God through Jesus and what he's done for you. It's this simple. It's crying out to Jesus in faith and saying, Jesus, I believe that what you did in dying on the cross and shedding your blood was for me. That's how you call in the name of the Lord to be saved. And for those many of us who have done that, who have cried out to God, 
Let me ask you this question. Are you at peace? Are you enjoying the peace that God offers you through Jesus Christ? It could be that you have invited something into your life that is hostile to God. My friend, can you see what it is right now? Would you turn from that and recognize that what God did for you through Jesus Christ on the cross was to make you at peace with him? And can you abandon that sin and so enjoy once again the peace that you can have with God because of what Jesus did? And those who have peace with God can enjoy the peace of God. It's so important that for, this, for us to remember this. It could be that you're here and you're languishing and you're just in such turmoil. You can't have the peace of God unless you are first at peace with God. And perhaps you're a believer and, and you are not at peace with somebody else. <laughs> the peace that God brings you in his relationship with him is the same sort of peace that you could extend to other people. Jesus said this, blessed are the peacemakers. As, as believers in Christ who have been brought to peace with God through Christ's expensive sacrifice, what should we not be willing to do to make peace with others? That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to be a peacemaker. It means to flourish as one who understands and embraces the peace that we have with God through Jesus and to extend that same peace to others. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And we can do that by the grace of God.